Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Ginny Ryan, a bioethicist and board-certified reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist and the Division Chief for Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Washington in Seattle. She's just a little busy and wears a few hats. In light of the recent decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, medical ethics or bioethical concerns have been a hot topic for clinicians in reproductive health care. So we thought that bringing in a bioethicist to talk about these ethical issues can help guide other clinicians who might be challenged in providing important health care to people who are pregnant or want to become pregnant. We also want to let our listeners know that we are undergoing some strategic changes so that we can improve our listener experience and streamline our processes. So we will no longer be offering our traditional show notes and will instead include takeaways, resources, and transcripts directly on our website. But we would still love an appreciate your support. You can find ways to support us on our website by going to www.womencenteredhealth.com and clicking the support us tab. Also, nurses can now earn CE for listening to the WCH podcast. Just check out the mycehq.com or download the CEHQ app or visit our website www.womencenteredhealth.com to learn more. And always, I'm recording with my little tiny person, so you may hear some little extra noises. So hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. The first question we always ask our guests is if you can share with our listeners some details about your background. Sure. It's great to be with you guys today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, As you know, I've been following for a few years and really enjoying your podcast. So I'm honored to be invited to talk today about bioethics. My background I uh, I grew up in Canada, in southern Ontario, except a few years um, living in England. And I think it's interesting to reflect just on that, because I think it it has informed my thoughts about national health care and access to care as I've then gone into medicine subsequently in my adult life. But I, I did move to the United States for college, and so I've lived here in the U.S. for longer than I ever lived in Canada by now. And I moved just thinking I would be competing in track and field, but then stayed, much to my parents' chagrin, especially when things like the Dobbs decision come out. They keep thinking this will be this will be something that'll bring her back home. <laughs> but I've stayed ever since college. I first took a course in ethics in college. I majored in something which at the time was pretty forward thinking. It was called biology and society. And specifically my area of interest was maternal and infant health and society. So along with that came some really interesting coursework, including a few courses in ethics and science and medicine. And so that that really began my began my interest in ethics. In medical school, I was drawn to women's health, to obstetrics and gynecology. I think that was really a combination of the the medicine and the surgery and and honestly <laughs> I, I specifically remember the day that I first saw a C-section in the amazing uterus and how huge it was and then how it just began to 
already become a closer to a normal size in minutes after the C-section. I just thought this is the most amazing organ in the world and I want to work with this organ <laughs> for medicines. And I also, I think I, I came to realize that it really, if I could get there to work um, with women as a surgeon and a physician, that it was a really privileged opportunity to work with people in really complicated situations, often fraught and complicated situations. So as far as the interest in bioethics, that, that continued after residency, and I was uh, really grateful to be able to pursue my master's in bioethics early in my faculty career, and also got involved at where I was previously in, in my practice at the University of Iowa for 20 years. I got involved in the program in bioethics and humanities, which was a wonderful interdisciplinary group. And through that, got involved in the ethics consult service as it just got started up there at the at the university hospitals. And I was encouraged to volunteer for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists Committee on Bioethics. And, and then through that was also just had a, a wonderful time as a representative of ACOG for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine's Ethics Committee and also the American Association of Pediatrics, AAP. And so just seeing how ethics was done in sort of different areas of medicine as well. And we interacted with representatives from the um, American Medical Association, their Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs. So just a, like one of the most, I would say, enriching experiences of my life being on that on that committee and really seeing how people were thinking through problem solving in these tricky areas of, of women's health. So that's kind of how I ended up really interested in this area, partly also because I'm extremely interested in access to care and justice issues. And that's something that, and policy, and that's something that is very much under the auspices of, and should be, of bioethics. So full disclosure, Ginny and I used to work together and at the University of Iowa and but also the VA and just one of my favorite people because she's just a I think a genuinely awesome human being. So I know you're <laughs> I know you're gonna, you're gonna be modest, but it is true and uh, totally miss you now that you're in Seattle. <laughs> I miss you too. All right, so enough gushing, but um, the other you kind of got into this a little bit in your previous response, but more directly, the other question we always ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? Yeah, thank you for sending that to me in advance, because it, it forced me to reflect a little bit. And it's a great question. You know, I think broadly, what I what I came to is the idea of empowerment of patients, and especially in a world of medicine and healthcare where there's often power issues, power differentials between patients and providers, and especially gendered power differentials. And I think just in our society, right? I think it's so powerful for women to be armed with knowledge and appreciation of the, you know, the, the wonder and the power of their bodies and to really try to be, befriend them, to try to have an awareness and, and, and just try to take back some control in what can be a very uncontrollable, seemingly uncontrollable world, and especially in healthcare. So I feel like that's a gift that I've been given is the opportunity to try to provide some of that knowledge and insight. And, you know, and, and now I've got three daughters, and I just, I, I see that in practice as they're sort of moving through puberty. And, and so that that kind of has informed my perspective, both in my civilian life and also in healthcare. And I and I think really 
again, the idea of access to accurate information, to knowledge, to the right providers, and to an understanding of the science is really, I think, what, what brings me to work every day and what has informed my perspective. I always love the response to that question. Okay, so like we said, today we're going to talk about medical ethics, so let's jump right in. Can you start out by explaining to our listeners, we're going to start out basic here, what are ethics? Yeah, that's also a great question. <laughs> and uh, depends a little bit on who you ask, of course, like so many questions. But I, I have had the opportunity to to lecture over the years to, you know, medical medical students all the way up to fellows. And and I think what it comes down to is basically how how one tries to figure out the best course of action. I think some people drill it down to even what's right or wrong. I I think that's over, overly simplifying things. And I think that's kind of one of the misunderstandings of ethics. And I think I've shared this with you, Stephanie, before is, you know, when people say, oh, great, we've got an ethicist here, they'll tell us what's right and what's wrong. And that, that you know, that's not at all. And I hope no ethicists out there are, are proclaiming such an ability. But uh, so I think it's a little bit more accurate to say to help to peel away the layers and figure out the best course of action or look to some standards. Some people, if you look it up, people, you'll see the terms morality and ethics being kind of interchanged. So it's, I think it's often, def it's defined as moral philosophy as well. So kind of the, the branch of knowing where you're trying to deal with moral principles to help make a decision. It depends a little bit, like so many things, and if you're talking about the theory or the practice. I think the thing I like about bioethics is that it's much more practical in my mind. It's sort of the study of what to do when issues arise in things like medicine and you know health and health policy. And so, and I think when when I when I took my master's, we talked about the history of bioethics and the history of ethics and. Of course, it, you can go all the way back to the very beginning of written history to talk about philosophers figuring out what's right and wrong. But the field of bioethics kind of seems to have arisen in like the late 60s and the late 70s. So it's pretty young. That's the 1960s and 70s. Pretty young. And, and, you know, it's interesting too, that might just be kind of what I was taught as well as a fairly Judeo-Christian American-centered teaching of the history of bioethics. But that's kind of classically what's taught at this point. So you got into this a little bit, but what what is the difference between ethics and morals? Yeah, I think they're often used interchangeably, but the way the way I think about it is um, again, I think quite practical. I feel like morals. I think of morals as being a personal ethic, something you've developed personally, uh, and it has a, a fair religious connotation most of the time. How you've developed your own sense of right and wrong. And that may have a lot a lot to do with if you follow any particular religious tradition or just your influences, you know, your upbringing, your, your social context, etc. Whereas I feel like ethics is generally, again, more practically considered sort of a, how do you figure out, again, what to do in certain professional situations? So like a code of conduct. So it's used in, in medicine, obviously, for bioethics, but people talk about business, law, hear about ethics panels in politics, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, I don't, it seems a little bit of a contradiction in terms. But anyway, I, I feel like that's kind of the, the difference in my mind between morals and uh, sort of moral underpinnings and ethical underpinnings. And when I when I used to teach this, I haven't had the opportunity much in the last few years, but I, I would describe for young physicians and providers that you sort of have these different codes of conduct and you've got 
you have to listen to institutional policy to some extent. You have sort of medical best practices code of conduct, and then you've got sort of ethical guidelines code of conduct. And sometimes those are like different voices, potentially conflicting voices in your head. You know, and now, of course, we've got more governmental interference, which is complicating that as well. But anyway, that's generally what I what I think about when I pull apart ethics and morals. And we will get into that in a little bit here. But before we get to that, what are the ethical principles and where do they come from? We teach about this principalist approach to doing bioethics, um, and I think it can be really helpful. It came from, interestingly, well, again, the, the sort of field of bioethics was, was developing in the late 60s and early 70s. That really came out of, of discussions around research ethics and how research had gone very, very wrong through World War II in the Nuremberg trials and then in the U.S. with the syphilis, Tuskegee syphilis trials. So there's a lot of really terrible history of research without ethics. And so out of that came this Belmont report, uh, which you can look up. It's really interesting. It was, it was years in the making, of course, but I think it was published in about 1974. And in that report, they pretty clearly set down three principles, one of them being respect for persons, one of them being beneficence, and one justice. And so the respect for persons one, it it talked about also protecting those without agency. So respecting persons with agency and protecting those without agency. And that that was, you know, again, directly kind of coming out of the mismanaged research that had, had been happening with really the most vulnerable people being charged with you know being research subjects and the benefits going to the, the already privileged. And so that out of that respect for persons came autonomy, which is considered one of the principles. And then beneficence talked about optimizing well-being and avoiding harms. And so out of that one came the beneficence and non-maleficence, which are two then of the principles. Uh, and then finally there was justice. And so the, again the four principles now are considered autonomy beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And, and also the Belmont Report and then these four principles also have all been informed by the oaths that you know our various professions, medical professions have taken over the years. So you hear at first do no harm as coming from the Hippocratic Oath, but all of that also informed this idea of these four principles, which are supposed to be equally considered when one is weighing ethically fraught situations. But that's basically what what is taught as the primary response to these situations is this four four principle approach. Yeah, and I think it's important to just make a quick reminder too, and you had said this, that these ethics are coming from a place where there were no ethics. And so kind of how they are born out of, of those situations is important to think about where these come from as well. But then my next question is, is how do these ethical principles intersect with clinician autonomy? Yeah, yeah. So autonomy, again, these four principles are supposed to be considered equally, but most people can understand this and see this in practice that generally autonomy is considered we act as if it's first among equals <laughs> so so it's kind of given especially in again our sort of western bioethical approach 
and its focus on individualism. So, but autonomy is really about the centering the patient or the research subject and making sure that that patient is fully informed and has the right to self-determination and bodily integrity. And again, it's a very much an individualist approach. It's sometimes, I suppose, misunderstood to also apply to physicians or providers and saying that they also have autonomous rights to make decisions about what they do. And that's just not, that's a misunderstanding or a misreading of the, the principles. As you can imagine, ha- having grown out of, you know, research ethics in this Belmont report really had nothing to do with the, the provider in that position of power being, having a right to their, to their own autonomy. So instead, what, what is, we think about when we talk about physicians or providers still having some some rights to live comfortably with their decisions based on their own needs and preferences and cultural religious background etc that that's considered as a separate thing but as it's called conscientious practice or some people kind of talk about conscious or conscientious practice but again different but definitely something to weigh in in this calculus of of what's the what's the best thing to do so you're kind of saying like clinician autonomy people are thinking of that as like i don't have to do anything that i don't agree with but you're saying that's more conscientious practice am i understanding that right Right. I guess I'm saying that there really isn't such a thing as physician autonomy. It's not just, you know, it shouldn't be, and that that sounds bad, but Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be considered as a principle. You know, it's not one of the principles. Autonomy is very much about protecting the patient in an unequally powered situation, protecting the research subject. And so, it just, it's just been, I think, misused. But there, there is a very, uh, and again, the AMA code of ethics describes conscientious practice. There is a, a very well accepted and, and I think appropriate discussion of, of a provider having some rights to make decisions within limitations about what they do in their practice. But I just want to pull it apart from, from the principles and, and what autonomy really means. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually heard it like that before, but it makes sense to separate that a bit because I know that's always you know especially in the media sometimes they you know kind of act like oh you know what if the providers don't agree with a you know specific to abortion what if you don't agree with abortion or what if you don't agree with birth control I've worked with physicians who don't believe that women should take birth control so um but then you know what what are you what are you doing to the patient? Are you centering the patient? Or are you centering your own self? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, again, going as with so many things going back to history and figuring out why some of these fundamental foundations of bioethics were developed makes you kind of understand that there really, <laughs> there really wasn't and still isn't really this need to give much more power to the providers. <laughs> they already have a lot of, you know, they have power. Not to say again that there shouldn't be some, you know, you have to you have to go through life as a provider feeling comfortable with your own morality as well. So not to say that, that that's not a consideration, but but it certainly doesn't need to be given that power. And so it's interesting to read, you know, the AMA Code of Ethics and how they describe conscientious practice rights. But the ACOG Committee on Ethics has a really nice uh, article that I think it was last affirmed in 2016, where they talk about conscious refusal refusal or conscientious refusal. 
And as you say, Stephanie, that's that is often used um, when it comes to abortion and refusal for abortion. But as you yeah, as you say as well, there's issues with contraception. And so so they describe it as I, I just looked it up recently in in prep for this to just look at their verbiage again. And they they describe it as being important but limited that these conscientious refusal rights shouldn't impose religious or moral beliefs on patients. They shouldn't negatively affect the patient's health. They should not be based on scientific misinformation and they should not create or reinforce racial or socioeconomic inequalities. I think that was just really well stated because I think the, the thing I love about considering bioethics in, in your decision making is that it should really pull you away from ideally from this sort of societal biases and, you know, your cultural biases that you may be subconsciously applying to, to your healthcare decisions. And so I think they've done a good job in that in that piece um, to try to really highlight those issues. So can we go in a little bit more then about abortion and conscious, conscientious practice? So we talked a little bit about how they're related. Do you have any kind of other things that you would say about that? Yeah. I mean, just reflecting in general about the, the sort of ethics in women's health care or reproductive health care, definitely abortion is the one that, you know, comes up the most. I guess if you were to just ask a panel of unselected, you know, folks out in the community or even in healthcare. But there there's a lot in reproductive health. I was part of a panel of authors that published some work we did. When I was at Iowa, we we were meeting with the, the medical students every six weeks and having them write up some cases, any cases that caused them to feel some angst about what happened and sort of try to process that in these cases. And we would go through them with, you know, they were de-identified cases and we'd go through them and just, and talk about the issues that would arise. And it was, you know, I would say maybe half the time somebody would write about an issue with abortion, but there was a lot of, there were a lot of other things. And when we published the data, we also were looking at the same type of process that the medical students did in their internal medicine and their pediatrics rotations. And they would consistently describe their rotation in obstetrics and gynecology as, as more fraught or the most fraught than they had in the rest of their medical school training. So it was really interesting to hear that and to see what came up for them as far as the issues. It's really across the lifespan. And when you think about when you're providing reproductive health care, it involves end-of-life care, which is sort of your classic kind of bioethics issues and where you have most of your bioethicists in medicine are, are sort of palliative care providers or looking at end of life issues. But it also, you know, starts with, again, early embryonic development. And, and that's why I became so interested in bioethics doing reproductive endocrinology. But it involves, you know, again, power and gender politics and bodily interference. And, and then this whole issue of, you know, is it maternal versus fetal interests? Or are those one in the same? What's the, the age of viability? And that goes to, you know, again, to the abortion issue as well. But also involves a lot of issues of technology and the body. And, you know, are we introducing, this is also an area in REI I'm super interested in, are we introducing new technologies too quickly without full consideration of their impact? So there are, there are a ton of complicated challenges in reproductive health. And I think abortion obviously gets a lot of press, but I think it's, it's easier to even think through if you, if you situate it in this kind of broad context. I'm just kind of curious with this research that you did with the students, did you have any kind of common themes between 
them. And I don't know if you have any more examples of of issue ethical issues that students have that you could speak to. Yeah, there were, you know, one of the things that came out too, which is an important thing when you're thinking, uh, working through clinical ethical reasoning is also to consider how much is a communication issue versus a true ethics issue. So that actually came up quite a lot, that there's just a failure of communication in a lot of what we do in healthcare that that might seem like a an ethical issue, but is not. So that, that interestingly came up quite a bit. When we actually honed in on what we would consider ethical issues. There's a real issue with also students' involvement in reproductive health care. And so the pelvic exam issue comes up all the time. That's a you know super common one, as you can imagine, from trainees and learners who feel that they have a right to you know, do some pelvic exams on, you know, on patients in the operating room and in the clinic. And so, and that the interesting thing about that is that that has, that really changes as you, as you move away from being a student yourself. You know, I sort of was on the very forefront of that. It's like, yes, we need full access. You know, this is a learning institution. We should just get to do pelvic exams on everybody. It's just part of medicine. And, you know, it's why are we exceptionalizing women's bodies. But then, you know, as you experience more of healthcare over the years and trauma that you've seen, you know, that women have gone through, then you, you start to really kind of understand that that's not necessarily a right that should just be automatically given. And it's much more important that there's fully informed consent, even for pelvic exams. So anyway, so that, that come, came up a lot. And there's a really interesting conversation to have with other subspecialty providers as well. And to think through, well, what's the, there's really no similar, I mean, people talk about, well, what about a rectal exam and, you know, prostate exam, but there's really no similar exam that is taught in medicine to the pelvic exam. And, and then also then when you think about exams under anesthesia and, and the general practice of not getting consent, because it's just the standard part of exams. And then you talk to patients about, do you understand that there may be exams under anesthesia that you weren't aware of? you know, a pelvic exam, you know, anyway, so it's, that's, that's something that came up a lot inappropriately. So in these cases as well. So it's really fascinating. And it's always really helpful for me to hear the students reflection because, and then we would also have rotating other physicians and providers come in to, to co-facilitate with me and to see them sort of be like, oh, I, I didn't even think, you know, maybe I've been in practice too long. I didn't even think about that. I had no, <laughs> no idea. And there's a lot of also, you know, with it, I know is, is near and dear to your hearts as well. The, there's a lot of sort of obesity stigma that comes up, you know, in women's healthcare as well. And, you know, and around and parenting, you know, that the sort of judging value around ability to parent that also comes up. So anyway, just super fascinating field. I could, I could go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just seeing like such an intersection between the things that we talk about all the time on this show with biases and how those intersect with ethics. And, you know, it almost seems like I'm putting this together now, like the things that we have biases on, then we'll, we'll like kind of take this moral high ground or we, we might call ethical high ground. But as you're saying, there's a difference. <laughs> so I, that's really interesting. Right, right. No, exactly. I was thinking that too, as I was thinking through this particular conversation, I was thinking this is exactly what you guys talk about every, every month is, is these issues. And yeah, 
So I, I agree completely. Yeah. Like if, if a person, if a patient is, we've labeled that patient as obese, that doesn't give the provider an ethical or moral, I would say like moral high ground to say, you know, to say like, we're going to, you're obese. You should, you know, I'm going to put you on a calorie restriction diet or, you know, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example, but really even just what I, I see all the time. Um, I just saw something on TikTok. I think April just sent that to us, Nicole, like a, a patient, you know, lo- lost 80 pounds and her provider weighed her and said, well, you still need to lose 20 more and didn't acknowledge anything about her her kind of big behavior change or um and so it's almost like they it's like you have a moral high ground to just kind of say whatever you want because you think you know right that that patient should lose more weight based on your own belief system yeah yeah i think exactly i think in there's so much this feeling in medicine that's very slow to change where you know somehow we have (laughs) we have the, the right to to judge what is somebody's ability or, or to be pregnant. So I'm just thinking about it, since I've been doing this REI, it's it's a long time now, I guess, but it, our policies have changed around, oh, helping a single person get pregnant or unmarried people. And oh my God, and what about gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people? You know, that that has finally been changing, but it took forever. And it it, it had nothing to do with medicine. It had to do with value judgments about being able to parent or be pregnant or, you know, what do you deserve? And so it's, it's really, and I think then that is reflected now in, in obesity stigma when it comes to in reproductive endocrinology, where there's so many BMI limits out there and it's, it's kind of people just fall back on, well, it's just not medically the best place to be if you're going to be pregnant. And I think that's just, that's exactly just an excuse to just perpetrate these, these biases. So it's quite frustrating. Well, let's move into the communication piece. So when we think about clinical decision-making and communication, how can we use ethics to inform those conversations, including coming up with the right answer or the best decision, quote unquote? Yeah, I think, again, that's, as I mentioned, I really, I like that practical, you know, and I think so many providers in healthcare are actually very concrete thinkers, right? you know, you start throwing in philosophy and, and it just gets like, ah, I just want to know what to do. <laughs> Somebody teach me what to do, you know. Uh, and that's like, that's me too. I like, I'm very practical and concrete. So a former colleague of mine, who's at the University of Iowa, I believe still, Loris Kelgen, and he, he published in 2005, this really helpful, concrete, <laughs> but, it, you know, open for a lot of input, this approach and it, the, the title of the article is a clinician's approach to clinical ethical reasoning. And interestingly, and I've just continued to use that in the way I think about ethical problems in healthcare. And we, when we were developing at the university, our ethics consult service, we would, we use this. And in fact, we had, you know, sort of a, a notes template that used the, the guideline as well. So I found it really helpful. And so it, it talks about to, you know, to begin, it's sort of like chief complaint, state your problem, what's the problem, and then sort of gather the the different data, the medical facts and goals, but also importantly, the patient's goals and preferences and other stakeholders. I think what I've 
pulled into this, which wasn't necessarily in the original article, was the idea that patients don't function in a vacuum. So there may be certainly and are almost always other stakeholders as well. And so whether that's family or community, but, and then also very importantly, bring in context that is there and that's sort of outside of medicine, but other, other context about their sort of their personal goals, their, you know, their personal, their personal definition of flourishing, that sort of thing. And then really importantly to think about it, as I mentioned earlier too, is this problem ethical or maybe it drills down to it's actually a medical decision-making problem that people can't agree on, or it's actually just communication, you know, that, that, that hasn't been clear, but so that's important to figure out and really name. And then the next part was, do we need to get more information and whether that again is just more expert medical advice, or are we talking about, do we need more dialogue? Do we need to talk to more of the stakeholders. And that's where I think one of the things that I didn't really anticipate with being an ethics consultant was this idea that learning how to be a mediator is really helpful, a, you know, a good listener and a reflective listener. And that's often what an ethics consult service will do is to try to promote dialogue between the stakeholders and just try to sort of have the, the right answer come up. You know, again, you're not necessarily the one who's identifying that, but I'm trying to just bring that out. And then, so then the final step is to look at sources of ethical value that are out there and determine the, you know, help the team um, to determine the best course of action again. So that's where you start to look to things like the, the four ethical principles or the issue of this sort of a consequentialist approach, right? Where you're sort of looking at what are the different, what are the likely outcomes and which one is a is a better outcome. So that's one way of approaching things as well. And also very related to thinking about medical issues is looking at cases that have happened in the past. You know, are there published cases or cases that people are familiar with where they've reasoned through this and you can do a sort of a similar thing. So that's that's even got a name like casuistry. But anyway, so just looking at comparable cases. And then, of course, it's important to look at professional guidelines that are out there, again, through your own subspecialty or through the AMA or and then and this is also where your consideration. Are there any conscientious practice considerations in there as well? So it's a really kind of nice stepwise approach that I continue to use. And I think after having written enough notes using that approach, it kind of just comes a little bit more naturally. But it's a way that you think about medical problems, too, again. And so it falls nicely in the way that often providers are thinking through problems. Yeah, so do, I don't know if you know, but do most hospitals have this, I can't remember what you called it here at Iowa, the ethics? Ethics consult service. Yeah, do most hospitals have that, that you're aware of? I don't, it's a good question whether most have it. There was definitely a feeling that when we were developing this at the University of Iowa, that we were in the minority of similarly sized institutions that did not have one. And it was really interesting to develop the service because we, you know, first sort of did a a needs assessment. And it turns out that when you don't have a consult service, that individual programs, departments, you know, clinical services will just develop their own system of how to how to figure these things out. And it often is sort of a consultative or group of experts types type of thing that has developed. For example, before we had the ethics consult service at Iowa, we would in in our REI practice there, if we were thinking of introducing a new and potentially fraught service like our gestational surrogacy program, 
we brought in some outside stakeholders from pediatrics and from the community and you know and we would have meetings where we would talk about the issues and sort of try to drill down so that that was happening and continues to happen all around over you know within hospitals um, and healthcare institutions but it's uh, i would say that it's quite common in large institutions to have an ethics consult service of some sort or there may be one that that you can contact for a broader you know health system and so we would have our annual conferences and people would be coming from across the state and would represent some sort of similar service that they might provide for that whole region of the state or their whole system of hospitals or healthcare facilities including it's pretty common to have something for sort of for nursing home types of institutions as well or rehab facilities so yeah i'm sure there's data out there on to answer that question more accurately. <laughs> so we talked about practically, you know, how clinicians tend to be pretty concrete or practical thinkers. If let's say, just, can you just walk us through like the best way to sort of communicate with a patient when you see an ethical issue come up? Like, how do you sort of decide that this is probably an ethical issue? And then how do you kind of talk to the patient like, I need to consult with somebody else on this? Yeah, well, interestingly, the, the, the consult service, we very clearly wanted that. It had to be patient-based, like a particular patient issue-based, because there's also obviously institutional ethics, policy issues, you know, and that, you know, for that, we had the ethics subcommittee to work on. But the consult service specifically was, had to be sort of problem and patient-based, but we wanted it to be open to family members, patients themselves, you know, and any staff in the hospital. So we made sure that there were, there were ways to get in touch with us that weren't just, you know, sort of a referral through the electronic medical record or a paging system. But um, fairly frequently, it was from some kind of clinician, nursing staff, somebody on the care team. And, you know, I think we, we did a fair number of just sort of curbsides where and wanted to be very open to that, where it was sort of like, well, I think this is really more of an issue to talk to safety and security about, because sometimes it was the quote unquote sort of difficult patient type of thing. And it was, you know, and so we would try to be that liaison to, to other resources in the hospital as well, what we thought might better address those issues or like palliative care. You know, sometimes it was end of life support and just sort of moral distress and we would get connected with those folks. So I think that that's ideally in, you know, in, in one's practice, you have access to that sort of curbsiding so that you're not even sure, does this need a whole ethics consult or does this just need, do I just need somebody else's, uh, you know, eyes on this? And that I think being a third party is really helpful again, to kind of reflect some of those things and, and offer resources. But it is interesting because our, one of our first questions always was, is the, is the patient aware of this concern that you have? And is, and, well, and interestingly too, and this is a whole fodder for a whole other conversation, but we would also make sure that the attending provider in that case was aware. And sometimes the issue was really about power dynamics within the, the care team. And so that was kind of, could be an awkward, you know, we would sort of do a curbside, but not put in a full consult because that person reporting the issue didn't want to get the attending um, physician involved. So, you know, I think, I mean, I think it's always fair to, and that's part of working within a team is to feel like you have somebody just within your team where you bring something to, to the team's attention to help 
pull out your own biases, right? And hopefully that's what every working team has is that they have care conferences where they can really bring in different voices within their own team. You don't necessarily have to elevate it to a whole ethics consult service, but I think that's really important to check your biases and try to figure out why am I responding so emotionally potentially or so, so strongly to this particular patient. Do you have any advice for how would a clinician who's having a concern frame this for a patient? Like, is that something that you say, hey, you know, I'm specifically having this issue or is this usually kind of happen, quote unquote, behind like closed doors and then you loop in the patient or what does that look like? Yeah, it probably probably requires some reflection. And to say, I'm just thinking about, you know, my own practice with this, we have we have issues come up fairly frequently with age and pursuit of fertility treatment. And that's really, that's been interesting and has changed over the years as well, where we used to think, oh my goodness, you know, 43 is just an age where we're going to be futile in our, (laughs) I mean, it was like 41 and then 42 and then 43. And now we're treating women into their later forties and even, you know, using egg, egg donation, IVF, to treat women up to 55. And so it really brings up, you know, it brings up issues of ageism and sort of, again, gender equity and what does it mean to be a, a you know, a parent and what it, what's owed to your child. And, you know, again, really interesting discussions, but I find myself in, you know, in those conversations with women, especially interestingly here in Seattle, we have just a more diverse population, I would say, and we have a fair number of Black women coming to see us and talking about how they've very truly been, you know, abused by the system, not had good access to care, and are, are, you know, finding themselves in a position now at 45, 46, 47, where they're feeling like they're wanting to parent. And and so it, it brings up a lot of great questions of, of equity and bias. And, and so I find myself, you know, saying, well, this is something that's rapidly changing. Uh, I need to talk to my team about this. I really appreciate you sharing where you're coming from, you know, right now. And we can point to sort of standards of care within our within our field, but then like to develop our own sort of team policies. And it's interesting to consider how a policy may both protect against bias, but also perpetrate, you know, bias. Because when we start to individualize care, we sometimes then perpetrate our own biases, you know, when we start to listen to the voices that are louder and make exceptions for those people. And so anyway, so I think it is, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, hopefully when a clinician is dealing with an issue that gives them kind of angst or is that they're able to step back and just talk to the patient and say, you know, I really appreciate our relationship. I need to think about this and I need to talk to our team and just be really open and honest in the communication about it. Yeah, thanks. That makes sense. So I know that a lot of people are interested now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade and really talking about the ethical implications of that um, with IVF. And since as a bioethicist and a infertility specialist, what do you see as the potential ethical implications versus legal implications on this new decision? Yeah, it is something that, you know, you can imagine that as soon as states start to say that life begins at whatever conception means, if that mean egg, means egg meets sperm, then we are dealing with that all the time. And so it's sort of, I would say, I, I think this is probably overused, but it's really accurate. It's had this chilling effect <laughs> on 
on, you know, on patients and on providers and everybody's pretty concerned about what that's going to mean. I think what the what American Society for Reproductive Medicine is saying in their statements and what they're doing besides you know, strongly standing with other with ACOG and you know all sorts of professional organizations to to speak out about this is that they're trying to identify where within each state law there might be an issue and most of the states I think all of the states to this point have said at least said that this is not going to impact IVF but it's hard to believe that it won't if you're talking about because we just routinely with embryos freeze them and they may not all get used and they patients may decide to discard them or donate them to research and we do genetic testing on embryos and and decide whether an embryo is chromosomally normal or not and we discard those chromosomally abnormal embryos and so there are most interestingly most of the long-term storage facilities for embryos are in states that are that have fallen or will, you know, abortion rights will fall soon. And that's kind of interesting, I think, to look into that and say, well, why is that? <laughs> that all these states that have the long-term storage facilities. But anyway, it's just, it's it's bad news. And so we have had a lot of patients asking to ship their embryos to Washington, where I'm, where I'm now, obviously, because they have proactively come out to protect reproductive rights. And so, and, I, and we've had a few people, at least two that I know of, who have said, with this happening, I don't want to, I am worried about being a, a person who is pregnant in this world in the US. And so I'm not pursuing fertility treatment anymore. So yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. And, you know, and just as a generally as a reproductive um, health provider it, and a woman, and a mother of three daughters, it's awful. And I think a part of the concern, you know, that we all have too is the, is the impact on the rights to contraception, rights to gay marriage and, and transgender care, and, you know, which are things we take care of as well in, in REI. So, so it's really, it's a concerning, and we just need to keep up on, on the, what's happening legally and politically and keep standing with our colleagues. Well, it's, it's such a hard situation to be in when you think of ethics and you're a, you know mm -hmm. you're a bioethicist and are thinking about ethics and those four principles and how those are going to compete against the law oh, i know and i'm sure this isn't the only time but it seems like for healthcare this is really end of life stuff is similar but yeah yeah there aren't a lot of You'd be hard pressed to find any laws that restrict, you know, there's, there's sort of laws in general should not impinge on sort of professional where, where professional societies in medicine, right. Uh, should have control over sort of what's best practices, but you have a few laws out there like EMTALA or whatever, that's sort of compelling the patient's right to healthcare, but it's very hard to find anything that, that, that creates a law against providing evidence-based appropriate medical care, right? I mean, so it's revolutionary in that sense. And I think about what I was reading from that, from the conscientious practice um, document from ACOG and thinking this is exactly what all of these states are doing. You know, you should not, these, these limitations to practice should not be limited by, they shouldn't impose religious or moral beliefs on patients. They shouldn't negatively affect health. They shouldn't be based on scientific misinformation. And they shouldn't create or reinforce racial or socioeconomic inequalities. I mean, that's exactly what these laws are doing. And so it's then forcing 
clinicians in those states to not do what they need to do, you know, to not provide evidence-based care and to not provide care to the, the most underrepresented people in our society. And it's just, it's, it's just hard to believe. And I feel both incredibly privileged and grateful that I'm in a state where that's protected and I'm not concerned, but also I am in a country where that's not the case. And I also feel for my, my colleagues and the women in the you know states not so far away who are so affected. What advice do you have or what can providers do if their state does ban abortions? Any pearls for them? Yeah. When I'm most angry about it, I feel like <laughs> just revolt, right? Um, just do what you're meant to do. I mean, I think practically, obviously speaking out is incredibly important and clinicians have a really powerful voice. It's really interesting actually that Roe v. Wade was really about a provider rather than actually women. There was a really interesting daily that came out recently where they were talking to a lawyer who was who was trying to get her case to the Supreme Court in the late 60s and early 70s, right before Roe v. Wade was passed, and um, how that was all about the patient voice. And so I think while it's important for clinicians to raise their voices, I think they really need to elevate the patient's experience and the patient's voices. Super, super important. Um, I think working with our group, our professional groups to figure out what they're doing to advocate, to support that and get word out about that and in the state, in state boards to see what, you know, to try to be savvy about what is out there and what might be coming down the pike and, and how to become politically active there to try to either shore up or to change things that are happening. I think similarly in, in, on an institutional level, just to figure out is my institution going to protect me? What are where are they? If I'm in a state where this is going to be illegal, what's going to what's going to happen to me when I provide care that I feel that I need to provide, or or how do I how do I do that? I think connecting nationally, right, is super important to know what do people need in other states. How can we work with? How can we? You know, that's what we're thinking about here in Washington. How can we provide care closer to the border? Provide funding for people to seek care in Washington? How do we deal with, you know, licenses that might not apply in other states? And I think, you know, obviously, and to donate to, to the organizations that are doing the good work as well are just some ways to try to help. I'm curious on your opinion on this too, is, you know, when people think Roe v. Wade, it's, it's all just framed from abortion access and it's a win if we can, no, you know, if women can no longer get an abortion. And I think what's being lost is there, it's more, Roe v. Wade is more than abortion access. And so I'm curious if you could also kind of spell out like, what, what are other ethical implications of this? I know you hit on some beyond just that abortion piece of Roe v. Wade that maybe people aren't really thinking about. Right. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that, that again, that daily, the way that they described, you know, the, the approach that the, the legal system has taken to try to like somehow cobble the constitution around what are really some fundamental rights, right? And so the, the approach that was taken with Roe was the right to privacy as a constitutional right, which obviously was at least temporarily successful. But with, I think thinking about it instead as sort of equal rights by sex or equal rights to all people perhaps would have been a more would have been a more long lasting approach legally. But, you know, again, I'm not at all a legal expert, but I think but I think when you do think about that, this issue of the right to privacy, how that's basically been 
they basically said, no, no, that's not in the Constitution, this fundamental right to privacy. You can just imagine what that means. And if you read Clarence Thomas's, his words in this ruling, it, you know, he's, he's already called out, again, rights to contraceptive access and rights to, to same-sex marriage. And, you know, so it, it doesn't take much to start to see what could fall. And, and if you look at, like, the Hastings Center is a nonprofit organization that's, that's focused on bioethics, and they're very concerned. It's interesting to look at their website. They're, they're not as concerned about sort of reproductive rights access with this Roe v. Wade being overturned, but they're more interested in what that means for end-of-life care. So I think that there's you know, profound implications with physicians having less, less agency over helping people end their life, you know, in a, what a patient might describe as a, as a good way. So... So yeah, I, th- I I totally agree. We need to be thinking as a whole country that this is not just about abortion, clearly, and that this could really have an impact on so many things. And I think that is important because a lot of people, yeah, I mean, we know that even women who have had abortions sometimes don't think that this applies to them, right? A lot of people sort of other these things, and they really need to personalize that this is impacting so many things. Yes, thank you for saying that. I. I, I shared this on my social media, but when I was a uh, when I worked at a Planned Parenthood in the abortion clinic, just seeing uh, one time a protester brought his daughter in, um, his sixteen year old daughter in for an abortion, and somebody asked, like, "Why are you here?" <laughs> um, <laughs> and he was like, "Well, this is different." Yeah, yeah. and he really did think that, but it's like is it you know we know it's not but (laughs) i don't know what they think but uh, yeah i don't know where i was going with that but it it just it just is really yeah we have to like stop othering that's exactly Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's interesting to see again with so many things that happen in this country and you know having been outside of the country recently for a long time it's really interesting to see how others reflect what we're what is happening in this country and to see, you know, all the countries, not all the countries, but many countries, you know, the UN and Canada and, you know, coming out against this as a real human rights violation, right? It's not so clearly if you, if you can try to appreciate their point of view, which is um, really important to do. It's yeah, it's not just about abortion. It's about human rights. So we want to be respectful of your time. I know we could talk to you for the entire day, probably um, <laughs> about all of this. But so if our listeners want to know more about ethics, especially as it's related to sexual and reproductive health care, where are some places they can go? I know you mentioned the one thing that was created here in Iowa. Yeah, that that article from 2005. Yeah, I think the I, I really like Again, I'm, <laughs> my bias having been associated and taking part as a volunteer in these committees, but I really think they do amazing work, is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, their Committee on Ethics documents are all, they're accessible on their website, but also through the, the Green Journal, which is what we call Obstetrics and Gynecology Journal. But those are publicly um, accessible. The American Society for Reprodu- Reproductive Medicine, also their ethics committee documents are publicly accessible on their website as well. Those are published in Fertility and Sterility. So those are good specific, you know, to sort of our field and our and our considerations. But they the ACOG ones 
cover things like basics, like informed consent as well, and conflicts of interest in medical practice and technology. And so some really nicely written and considered opinions. You know, I, I love the Guttmacher Institute. That's typically more policy, but they're really up to date on what's going on. And, you know, I think ethics informs policy a great deal. So they certainly wouldn't describe themselves as an ethics group, but I think those are also really thoughtful and timely. I mentioned the Hastings Center. That, again, I was interested to see it as a, sort of, again, talking about more concerns with end-of-life care and how DOPS will affect, may affect that. But it is a good site for looking at some um, really well-reasoned ethics. I actually really like the the code of ethics, the AMA code of ethics, because it's just again, it's really nice to see sort of the underpinnings, at least for again from the from the standpoint of the physician group, and see what they've got in there. There's an interesting nonprofit organization called Hypatia, um, H-Y-P-A-T-I-A, and that's a feminist bioethics group that has done some really interesting work that one you have to be a member of to access their information but they're doing a lot to try to be inclusive and reflective of underrepresented groups in healthcare. and then i think just you know these days searching reproductive justice is a great way to kind of find what what some excellent groups are doing out there and there's a there's a real focus again you know i talked about the four principles and justice and and I think that that's a really important component of, of an ethical approach to practice, which in reproductive health is to have that reproductive justice lens. So they're not, I, I, I'm sure if you ask some of these organizations, you know, are you a specific ethics group, they would decline <laughs> to say that they were, but I think that's really what they're doing, right? And so those are, those are just some ideas. Yeah, and I'll be the Nicole. I feel like Nicole is really good at this, but we do have a couple of great episodes, early episodes on what reproductive justice is. So if that's a new term for you, check out. I think it's like our second episode. For sure, seven is with with Tony Von Leonard, but then there's one before that, which is, I think, two or three. With with physicians, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I should just list this podcast. If one would ask me what, yeah. <laughs> where to go for. <laughs> so Jenny, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? I don't think so. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you both and brought up a lot of related issues that I hadn't really thought about. And again, I think your podcast is awesome. Everybody should listen to it all the time. Well, and thank you be for being such a big supporter of it. <laughs> yes, thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Oh.